Would you take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 12 with me this morning? Numbers chapter 12. By nature, we hate authority. One of the first words that a child learns to say is no. It seems like that's all they say for the first year that they start talking. talking, And, and we kind of find it cute and funny, but it's not. Because they are learning how to resist what they are instructed to do. And as we get older, we go to school and learn how to push the boundaries of the teacher. We don't like when mom and dad tell us to clean our room. We, we don't want to obey. We, we want to do things our own way. And then as adults, the government tells us to pay our taxes or to pull a permit or to drive the speed limit. And we say no, no, and no. We get a job and our boss tells us to show up on time and to stay off social media during the day, but we say no. And frankly, if there were no penalties in place from any of these authorities, we would rarely obey. We would be our own boss, our own authority, our own God. And our idolatry of self is really at the heart of our disdain for authority, isn't it? I mean, think of it, Adam and Eve were without sin, but then came the temptation to defy God. And instead of resisting the temptation and saying, I will obey my God, they were compelled about the prospect of becoming like God, knowing good and evil. And they effectively raised their fist in the, fist in the face of God saying, no, I will do it my way. And the human race has never been the same since. Person after person defies both human and divine authority from the time of birth. Whole nations rise up against God himself. They plot in vain against God and his appointed ruler, Psalm 2. And the arc of human history is that man has resisted the authority of God. And yet God has sent Jesus to reverse that trend as we have sung this morning. But the climax of human history will be when all defiant human beings from all time will be destroyed by the God who created them and owns them. And they will be cast into hell for all of eternity where they will continually raise their fist to God. They will continually despise God and his authority over them. Obviously, not all of humanity will be condemned, but but God will judge those who oppose his authority. We hate authority. And if you think that is just a problem for unbelievers, then listen up this morning. Because here in Numbers chapter 12, we have the story of two believing leaders of Israel who hate their authority and they raise their fist against him and ultimately against God. And God is going to remind us this morning that no matter who we are, To rebel against our authority that God has placed over us is to rebel against God. Would you uh, follow along in the text as I read? This is the word of God. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. 
Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out of the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam when they had both come forward. He said, Hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, and in which we have sinned. O do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, O God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Afterward, however, the people moved out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. To rebel against authority is to rebel against God. For Miriam and Aaron to rebel against their authority, Moses, who was appointed over them, was to rebel against God. We see two main parts of the text here. First, the challenge against capable authority in verses 1 and 2, and then the rest of the text is really God's response to their challenge of authority. Rebellion is against authority is not confined to people who have little authority. These two people, Moses or Miriam and Aaron, are in a position of power, of leadership. And so it's not confined to, to people just who are kind of on the lower end of the, the, uh, of the scale. It, it is people all up through our society. They all have authorities that they have to obey. In chapters 1 through 10, life was good for Israel. God was living among them. God prepared them to follow Him. And the people were in lockstep with God. But seemingly, no sooner did, no sooner did they begin their trip from Mount Sinai where they received the law, where they had, where they had participated in the Passover... No sooner had they left there that they began grumbling against God once again. They grumbled because of their adversity in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And then they grumbled because of their dinner menu in verses 4 through 35. But the grumbling was not just happening among the common people, the, the congregation. It was also happening with the leaders. And that's what we see here. The reasons for their... their um, their challenge of authority, the reason for their rebellion is found here in verses 1 and 2. The first reason that they give is that they had a disdain for Moses' African wife. Notice there it's Moses. They spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom she had married, for he had, or whom he had married, excuse me, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now, who is this woman? We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her except for what we see here. It could be that Zipporah, his wife from Midian in Exodus chapter 2 is the same woman as this Cushite woman. But more likely, Zipporah has died at this point and Moses has remarried an Ethiopian woman, which is another way to say a Cushite woman. Whatever the case, Aaron and Miriam are not pleased 
And so this is their initial reason for why they don't like his authority. But, but I don't think that's the main reason because that reason is never brought up again in the text. And this is often what happens when people grumble. They have all sorts of complaints that they have, but, but they have one driving one. Those other ones are just kind of surface level. They're just uh, almost red herrings uh, to get them off, off get, get the person off the topic. But, but, but this problem here, or this, this disdain that they have for Moses' wife is only a cover for their real problem, which we find in verse 2. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And so here's their main problem. It's domestic rivalry. They, they, they want to have the same kind of, uh, of access to God that Moses has, and they want to have the same recognition apparently above, uh, uh, among the people. Moses gets all the credit for, for leading the people through Israel. But what about us? Hasn't God spoken through us? You're not the only one who's heard from God, Moses. Maybe this was as a result of what had just happened in the previous chapter. Do you remember what happened? When the people complained, or when Moses complained about, uh, to God about his situation, God said, you know what, Moses? You need the Holy Spirit to be put on these 70 elders. And so I'm going to, to have the, the Holy Spirit that's on you be put on them. So they're going to be able to help you. Um, you can't carry this on your own. And so it could be that Miriam and Aaron were not among the 70, and so they felt left out. But whatever the case, the text is clear that they were upset that, that Moses was getting all the face time with God and the credit among the people. But Moses was not the only prophet among them. They too had heard from God. Let's notice the last line of verse 2, and the Lord heard it. God is going to respond here in verses 3 through 16. He's going to respond in verses 3 through 16. We might look at this complaint by Aaron and Miriam and think, well, what's the big deal? They're, sp- they're simply speaking their minds. You know, they're, they're telling truth, aren't they? But remember, this is not much different from the grumbling of Israel in chapter 11. Look back to chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity and the hearing of the Lord. And then notice, and when the Lord heard it, that sounds familiar, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them. And then later on in in chapter 11, the people cried out, who's going to give us the meat? Why can't we go back to Egypt where we had all this meat and, and, and all these vegetables? And what did God call their grumbling? Look at verse 20, chapter 11, verse 20. As God's... Uh, in 19, he says, you shall, you shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, not ten days, not twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Why? He doesn't say, because you have grumbled. Notice what he says, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. So, in their grumbling, they were showing that they were actually rejecting God. And I would suggest the same principle applies to Miriam and Aaron. For them to grumble against Moses and his leadership was to grumble against God. It was to reject God, chapter 11, verse 20. And I love how God responds here. You know, in chapter 11, they grumble and God responds with anger and he's ready to wipe out the whole lot of them. But here in chapter 20, he responds a lot like my father would often respond to my sin. That is with three things. A rational argument, necessary discipline, 
and merciful compassion. First, a rational argument. A rational argument, verses 3 through 8. Did, did, your, did your parents ever do this to you? Sometimes this was more um, painful for a teenager than just getting the discipline out of the way, right? It's to have to sit down and talk through all these things and get down into the deep, the deep recesses of our hearts. But it was, it's necessary. We are rational creatures. We think rationally. And it's good to, to think these things through. And this is what God does with them. He, he treats them with respect, allowing them to recognize the weight of what's going on here. And so he uses this rational argument. And the first thing that he brings up is the humility of Moses in verse 3. The humility of Moses. Now, notice what the text says there in verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was in the face of the earth. Pop quiz. Who wrote the book of Numbers? Moses. Who, who wrote verse 3? Possibly. Right? Could, could be Moses. If, if it were Moses, then he, he might not be opposed to a saying like this. Here's a list of the ten most humble people I know and the reason why I chose the other nine. Right? Seems a little self-serving for Moses to put this little verse in here. Moses is the most humble person in the entire world. And he wasn't afraid to talk about it. So it could be that Moses wrote it, um, or maybe someone else edited this final document to add in a couple of kind of, we could call them footnotes to the text. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7, it says, which again was written, that Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses, but listen to Deuteronomy 34, 7. Moses was 120 years old when he died. So, it could be that Moses wrote it, or we could have had an editor come in and add a couple of textual notes to, to update it and make it final. Either of these is possible, but, but the question how was it written or who was it written by is not as important is in, as that it is here. In other words, it is Bible, right? The Holy Spirit inspired it. So whether Moses wrote it or an editor wrote it, it's in there. So what we need to know is that Moses was a humble man. The, the better question that we should ask is how did it contribute to how does verse three contribute to the story? And in this case, the ultimate author, God, is vouching for Moses' humility, isn't he? What is humility? Well, humility is seeing God for who he is and seeing ourselves in light of who God is. That's Moses. He depended upon God. He saw God for who He was. And the point is that Moses is respected among Israel and Egypt and the other nations because he relied on God. That's how he defeated Egypt. That's how Egypt uh, they were delivered from Egypt because he relied on God. And his strength is not based on his own defense, but on God's defense of him. And so he doesn't have to say anything to Aaron and Miriam. God's saying it saying Moses is the most humble man on the earth. And God's defense is even clearer in verse 4 when he judges Miriam and Aaron. And here what God says is, first, in verse 3, he says Moses is, is humble. Second, he says Moses is faithful in verses 4 through 7. And I love how this story unfolds because if you're thinking about this from Aaron and Miriam's perspective, they have no idea what this meeting is going to be about. Look at verse 4. Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, you three come out of the tent of meeting. And they came out. So up until this point, they don't know if God's angry, if God's going to respond to them, if God's going to give them a, a promotion. 
What's going to happen here? God simply says, come out. God, we know, is going to make a judgment on the older siblings. And he's going to make it clear that, listen, you might have these, what you think are legitimate beefs against Moses, but Moses is not the one on trial here. Moses is humble and Moses is faithful. You two are the ones who are on trial. And God here is going to call himself as a witness, affirming Moses' credibility as a leader. Notice what he says in verse 7. Not so with my servant Moses. In other words, people have heard from God in various ways, but not so. He is faithful in all my household. God is saying here that I am the owner and the master of the world. I am the owner and the master of the universe. I am the owner and the master of Israel. And yet I work through people to care for Israel. And at this time in history, it was Moses who would be God's master. God's, not God's superior, that's not what I mean, but the one who would be the master over God's household. And what does God say about him in verse 7? That he is faithful in all my household. He's faithful. Isn't that what we're called to be for God? That in the end, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful, trustworthy. This is Moses. He, he speaks on behalf of God. He acts on behalf of God. It's, it's as if God himself is there. It's like Moses is the head butler who organizes and leads all the other servants of the house. He's not the owner of them, but he has a responsibility over them to lead the house in a way that would be pleasing to his master, God. And God says that's exactly what he's done. He's been faithful in all my household. God says not only is he humble and faithful, but in verse 8 he is God's special servant. He is God's special servant. Let's start with verse 6 here. Notice what God says there. Hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. So he's saying just your ordinary prophet. Is there an ordinary prophet among you? I'm going to speak through him. Most prophets in the Old Testament heard from God through a vision or through a dream. But not Moses. Why? Because look at verse 7. Not so with my servant Moses. It's not that way with Moses. They hear in a vision or a dream, but notice how he speaks to Moses. Verse 8. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against him? So most prophets were hearing from through a vision or through a dream but not Moses. He's saying, I don't speak in dark sayings you know, where it's enigmatic. We have to try to figure out what the point of it is. I speak clearly. And, and notice, it's not just face to face, but what in verse 8? Mouth to mouth. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say mouth to ear. He doesn't say, I sit Moses down and I do all the talking. What does mouth to mouth imply? That he's having a conversation, a dialogue with Moses. Isn't this amazing? That they're both speaking. They're having a conversation. It seems to be a more personal encounter than how it's described in Exodus 33 and Deuteronomy 5 of Moses meeting with God. Normally it's described as Moses meets with God face to face. Remember he came 
uh, down from the mountain. He was glowing. Uh, but here, God says it's actually more than that. It's not just that we're face to face. We're actually speaking to one another. Moses does what no other human does during his time, and that is that he beholds the form of the Lord. That's what it says in the middle of verse 8. This is the something that the people were shielded from until death. They were not even allowed to come and touch the mountain. Do you remember there are various levels that the mountain was almost like a kind of temple and that you had the most holy place of the mountain, so to speak, would be where Moses could go and then you could have some other leaders who could come to an outer region or a lower region of the mountain but they couldn't come up into the glory cloud and then at the bottom no one could touch it, not even an animal or they would die. Yet Moses was doing what no other human could do. God was having a one-on-one conversation with him. So there, there are all the facts. Moses is humble. He sees things as I see them. Moses is faithful. He does things as I do them. Moses is my special servant. I talk to him. Here's the application. Look at the end of verse 8 for Miriam and Aaron. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So here it is. If I, God's saying, if I have such a close relationship with Moses, then why were you not afraid to speak against him? In other words, for you to oppose Moses and his authority, for you to despise Moses' leadership is to despise and oppose me. You should have been fearful in your response. Instead, you were flippant. You act as, as if you deserved something. So he first begins with a rational argument. Then he moves to necessary discipline. Like a loving father, he moves to necessary discipline. In verses 9 through 12. No different from the grumbling in chapter 11, God here responds with anger and discipline. God withdrew himself from the tent, and when he left, he left Miriam with leprous skin. And why is it that only Miriam had the leprosy and not Aaron? Right? Look at verse 11, because it's clear that Aaron was culpable as well. Then Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to... He doesn't say to her. He says to us. So he, he recognizes that he was taking part in this as well, in which we have acted foolishly, in which we have sinned. So he's taking responsibility for himself and for Miriam. So he sinned as well. Why didn't he become leprous like she? And the answer is we don't really know. Um, but it does seem that Miriam was the instigator. Look back up to verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. And the reason I point this out is because it's very unusual in the Old Testament for a woman to be listed first in a list of people. So it's very likely that Miriam was the, the ringleader, the cheerleader of, of opposing Moses and opposing God. And so as a result, she was the one who received the most obvious of uh, discipline. The other possibility is that um, some scholars bring out is that, that perhaps Aaron was needed to be the high priest to, to provide the means of atonement for Miriam to come back. If they were both unclean, neither one of them could come into the, the, uh, the tabernacle and be cleansed, obviously, unless Moses um, took that place. But that seems to be Aaron's responsibility since he is the high priest. 
Whatever the case is that Miriam is, has to go outside the camp. Notice the quick repentance in verses 11 and 12. Aaron responds, and after he says, we have sinned, verse 12, he says, Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten when he comes from his mother's womb. In other words, get rid of this white-colored look from her, this leprous skin. The irony is that Aaron and Miriam want to be able to talk to God face to face. Verse 1, why can't we do what Moses does? You're the only one that hears from God. He's, and the irony is that now he has to go to Moses to, to uh, have Moses be his mediator to God. Isn't this interesting? Aaron confesses his sin on behalf of himself and Miriam, but he does it to Moses so that, Moses, will you plead with God on our behalf? And Moses, of course, does in verse 12. Moses' plea is that she remains alive, that she doesn't die from this life-threatening disease. And although leprosy sounds like a harsh discipline, Miriam and Aaron both got less than what they deserved. Right? God could have easily wiped them out like He did to the leaders that who are held to a higher standard in Israel as they are today. God could have easily just wiped them out and said, I'm done with you. But He gave them less than what they deserved. And then He finishes like a loving father with merciful compassion in verses 13 through 16. Merciful compassion. God responds to Moses' plea for Miriam and He responds with compassion. But... He still allows her to feel the sting of discipline. Moses cries out in verse 13 and then verse 14, But Lord said, the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? And afterwards, uh, let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and then afterwards she can be restored. God responds with not immediate healing, but delayed healing. And the point that God is making is, if she, Miriam, had shamed her father, then he would spit on her face and she would be unclean for seven days. She wouldn't be able to come to the tabernacle for seven days. So the fact that she, she has disgraced me, would it not be right for me to at least have her stay outside the camp for the seven days? Should she not at least bear the shame of her sin for seven days? And spitting in someone's face has the same meaning today as it had back then. And I was going to have two volunteers come up here and let me show you, but, but just take my word for it. It means the same thing. It's an act of shame. Notice the compassion of God, though, in, at the end of verse 14. Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp. But notice this. And afterwards she may be received again. God says she can come back. And then in verse 15... So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. So here, here God's saying, I'm the one who leads the people and I, we could just leave Miriam behind. And let her have to deal with it. But no, God's saying no. Until she is restored, we're going to wait. And we're not going to move to the next city, the next location, campsite, until she's restored. So God's being merciful here. God gives a rational argument, talk why this is important to have Moses as your leader. And then he, he gives necessary discipline, but then follows that up with merciful compassion. Let me just give you a few applications here as we conclude. Number one, no one is too old to need sanctification. No one, no one is too old to be immune from God's conviction. So let me explain. We, 
we have a few phrases in our culture that make us think that old people can't change. What, what are they? Can't teach an old dog new tricks. Or maybe we say they are set in their ways. Just leave them alone, right? And the reality is that if you're a Christian and you're still alive, then God is not finished sanctifying you yet. Is that true? He's still working to transform you into the image of His Son. And the reason I say that you're not too old, no one is too old, to need sanctification is because of the ages of these three people in the story. You know how old these three siblings are? According to Exodus 7-7, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they were delivered from Egypt. This is a year later. So now we have Moses, the younger, snotty, proud, in their view, brother who's 81, and Aaron, who's now 84. And you know how how old Miriam is? She's probably in her mid-90s because she was likely the one who who, uh, was at the river when Moses was put into the basket. Took baby Moses from, Mo- from Pharaoh's daughter to her mother to be, to be nursed, do you remember? She's probably in her early 90s at this point, or, or mid-90s. And the fact is that, that they are still learning lessons in their 80s and 90s. And so we are never too old to learn and to grow. No matter how old we are, we still have sin in our hearts. We might think, well, you know, over time we will get better. And hopefully, God willing, that is the case. But, but you know what happens often, even with Christians, that the older that we get, the better that we are at covering our sins. The better that we get at often justifying our sins. But praise God that He still hasn't finished working on us, that He still has the ability and does remove the scales from our eyes and allow ourselves to see Him for who He is. To reveal to us the filthiness, the vileness, the ugliness of our rebellion against God. And the good news of this passage passage is that there is hope because 84-year-old Aaron and maybe 95-year-old Miriam learned from their sin. They listened to God. They responded with repentance, apparently, and they were restored. No one is too old to be sanctified. Secondly, no one is too young to be warned about the dangers of rebellion. No one is too young to be warned about the dangers of rebellion. And so this second application is for everyone who considers themselves not old. Okay, so that's probably most of us here. And can I just ask you this question? Where do you think grumpy old people come from? The answer is that they're, they're grumpy young people who've had a few years under their belts. So don't buy the lie of the devil that says, well, yes, I'm young, and yes, these things bother me, and I can't stand my authority, but there's coming a day when my spouse is not going to be a problem for me, or when the government's not going to bother me as much, or when my boss is not going to bother me because I'm not going to have a boss. He'll be retired. And when I get old, I'll be over it. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You will resent those people and those issues even more if you think like that now. Because old habits die hard. And so, young people, 
If you get into the pattern of rebelling against your authority, don't think that you can just shut that off one day like a light switch. I know it's bad now, and I know God doesn't like it now, but there's coming a day when I'm going to be so good at this. Old habits are hard to change. So work now to start developing new good habits. Work now to resist the devil with the strength of the Holy Spirit so that he will flee from you. Work now to avoid bad habits of rebelling against authority because old habits die hard. I think the converse of that maxim is also true, and that is that old good habits also die hard. Old good habits also die hard. That is, if you get into the habit now while you're young of appreciating your authority and submitting to your authority, of thanking God for your authority, praying for your authority, then you can expect that those habits will stay with you, that they will die hard. They will continue. None of us are too young to be warned about the dangers of rebellion. It will, it will deteriorate our very souls if we let it. So we have to constantly, constantly be vigilant against rebelling against authority. Finally, develop a healthy fear of defying authority. This goes along with the last one. But develop a healthy fear of defying authority. No matter what your age, develop this kind of healthy fear of I don't want to defy my authority. God's condemning question to the older siblings at the end of verse 8 is, why do you think it was a good idea to rebel against Moses? Why were you not afraid to do that? And so we, I think, ought to... The point is that the opposite of that or the implication of that is we ought to be afraid of defying authority, right? We ought to have a healthy fear of saying, I don't care what you think. I will do it my way. We should have a healthy fear of defying the authority that God has placed over us, whether it be at home or at work or in the government, or at church. God has placed each of your leaders over you for a purpose. Does He not know what He's doing? I mean, why do you think it's okay to grumble against your leader? To speak against them? Because the reality is that when we reject our authority, we reject God. In other words, God places people in authority over us, and even some who are extremely difficult in order to teach us how to submit to God, who in our minds can be difficult. He tells us hard things like, obey your authority. I'm not giving excuses for those of you in authority to be harsh and compassionless. You know, they, they, they have to worry about themselves. No, instead, be like Moses, humble, faithful servant of God. But I am trying to make it clear that each of us has a clear responsibility to resist the temptation to defy our authority like the rest of our culture does. They do it so easily. They, they are self-made people. Instead, develop a healthy fear of defying authority. And, and let me just encourage parents, teach your children to be afraid of defying authority as well. Would you pray with me? Father, it's always good to be reminded about how you are a good and faithful God to us. 
and we look at the circumstances and, and the great privileges that you had given to Israel, and we are amazed at your grace. And from our perspective, we, can, we wonder at why these two would grumble against the authority that was placed over them. At the same time, we can also uh, feel some of their pain. He was a younger brother, and he seemed to get more of the limelight and more of privilege than they, but, but with all the privileges that you had given to Israel and to Miriam and Aaron, how could they defy your authority? And it's really not about how much privilege we get. It's really about what's right. And so, Lord, we pray that, that you would remove the resistance that we naturally have towards our authorities. And we have them everywhere in life. And, and uh, it's, it's easy for us to ignore them or to dishonor them or to, to grumble against them. And in doing so, I think we, we rebel against you. And so, Lord, would you purify us today? Would you, would you challenge us and convict us of our sins? Help us to appreciate the people that you have put over us, even if they are difficult and not the people that we would choose. Would you give us um, clarity? May the Holy Spirit train us in the way that we should go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.